This is a download from Force Migration Online. To find out more, please go to www.forcemigration.org. Of course, I had no money to 
fund each of them to go on field work, even though they would have liked me to do it. And while reading the assignments of the student, I was struck by their quality. And uh, I thought, oh, gosh, these are actually quite pretty good papers. And as you probably know, the pity with the student assignments is that most of the time they're lost. You, know, you mark them, you give them back to the students, and then that's it. And so I kind of convinced the students that their papers were worth putting them together and trying to publish some kind of collective volume, a kind of collective study, uh, which we call pretentiously the State of Environmental Migration 2010. And basically the idea of the publication was to document some recent cases of environmental migration and displacement. And that was it. Everyone was happy and so on. And then I got a call from a reporter at Le Monde. The reporter's name was Hervé Kempf, and he's a very senior reporter in France, specializing in environmental affairs. And somehow, Hervé Kempf had seen the publication and wanted to run an article about it. And so asked me if I, were, if I was willing to do an interview and to speak a little bit about it. And I said, sure. And he actually published this very nice article in Le Monde about our publication. And that seemed all fine. And then he called me back and he said, hey, listen, this was between Christmas and New Year's Eve, so newspapers don't have a lot of news to print in that period. And so he told me, listen, I might have a possibility to get you front page news with this report. And I said, oh gosh, front page news. <laughs> and he's like, but I would need something new about 2010. What is new in the report apart from a collection of case studies? And so he asked me what was so special about the case of 2010. And so I start saying, well, uh, there were definitely quite a lot of disasters inducing quite a lot of displacements in 2010. There were some major disasters in Haiti with the earthquake, the floods in Pakistan. So definitely, uh, that was a particularly black year, so to say. And then, of course, he pops in the usual question of journalists. So how many people were displaced? And actually, I had a figure of the people displaced by these disasters, which is a figure produced by the Norwegian Refugee Council and the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center. And so the figure was 42 million people had been displaced by natural disasters in 2010, which was a correct figure. And then I told him, but take care, not all of these disasters were related to the climate. And it's estimated that out of these 42 million, only about 38 million were actually dis dis displaced because of disasters related to the climate. And so basically, we added this subtitle. So 38 million of people have left in 2010 because of uh, events related to the climate. And then I saw the front page. And of course, this information, which was correct in the article, became 38 million climate refugees worldwide which was not that correct, especially given that on top of these people, on top of these people displaced by natural disasters, there were, of course, people displaced by Islam and Satyrids. And that was it. That was between Christmas and New Year, so nobody reads the paper at that time. So the story went unnoticed. And then, a few days ago, and you've probably seen this, there was a... There was an editorial published in the Wall Street Journal by climate skeptics. 
And basically, the, the article was saying, well, there is no need to worry, there is no need to panic about climate change because climate change is not happening. And that was that made front page news in the Wall Street Journal. And then, of course, Le Monde published an article about the story and about climate skepticism. And basically, the point of the article was to show that climate skepticism was rubbish and that the opposite editorial was absolute nonsense, that the Wall Street Journal should never have published this kind of things, and, and so on and so forth. And so the article went on to conclude, but climate change is occurring, and the proof of that is that a recent report by Sciences Po showed that there were 38 million people displaced because of climate change worldwide. So it all started with some student assignments. And I had the idea that it would be nice for the students to have a kind of first publication, especially it was part of a master of research. And all of a sudden, because of Le Monde, my students had proved that climate change was actually okay. So the reason I tell this story is that every time we speak about this issue, there is a very high risk of being instrumentalized and that the figures that everything we say and quote might be used with a policy agenda. And this is this policy, this policy agenda that I, would, that I would like to reflect on today. It seems to me that the debate between scholars started with a defining question which was about whether or not environmental displacement existed or not. Or rather, whether there was something new about it, something justifying the addition of a new category of displacement, something justifying possibly new policy responses, new normative frameworks. And from quite early on, migration scholars disagreed with environmental scholars. Migration scholars dismissed immediately the idea that there was anything new with environmental migration and insisted that migration was a multi-causal process, that environmental reasons had always been part of the factors leading to migration and that they were intertwined with a lot of other migration drivers. So one should not say, one should not speak of environmental migration as a separate discrete category apart from global migration dynamics. On the other hand, environmental scholars, of course, were very keen on embracing the topic of environmental migration as something new, as something that was created by climate change. And I think that the key reason that might explain this difference and these different perspectives on the issue are not only the different methodologies and the different schools of thought, but also different policy agendas. Definitely, migration scholars were keen on predicting the current rights of migrants and refugees, and were also afraid that adding a new category of migration might frighten governments. So there was one academic or scientific reason that it made no sense to actually envision this as separate from global migration dynamics. But also, I believe, the fact that there, were, that, that there was a risk here to frighten government and to actually reduce the rights of migrants and refugees by adding a new supplementary category. On the other hand, environmental scholars 
Well, kind of observing the situation from the point of view of climate change and environmental degradation, and could observe that the deteriorating environment was leading to migration flows. And of course, they would use these migration flows as a way to prove that environmental degradation was actually taking place. And definitely their agenda, especially with regard to climate change, was to prompt action on climate change. And this is how climate refugees, as they became to be called, became the human faces of global warming. And the picture that you see on the screen was actually taken in front of the conference center in Copenhagen at the end of 2009. So every day when the delegates would enter the conference center, they would see this kind of figure of death of a kind of climate refugees with a counter counting the number of refugees because of climate change. I've never been able to figure out how and where they got these numbers, but every day the delegates would walk past this figure of climate refugee or kind of Halloween day. So climate refugees became to be known as the human faces of global warming, as expiatory as victims of climate change, as the first witnesses of the changes that were, that were happening, and clearly the living proofs that global warming was already underway. If you want, to make sure that climate change is already underway. You just need to look at these refugees. Look, there are people migrating away because their environment is deteriorating. So this is the proof that climate change is happening because we know we have refugees. And the problem, of course, is that this idea of a multi-causal migration that was put forward by migration scholars didn't get along very well with this rhetoric. If climate change was something new, then it had to induce a new category of refugee. The idea that these kinds of refugees or migrants had always existed didn't get along very well with the rhetoric of climate change. Didn't get along very well with the idea that these climate refugees could be the human faces of climate change. Another part of the discourse was to play with the fears of government and to actually encourage them to act on climate change and to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. Because if they would not reduce the greenhouse gas emissions, then they would be flooded with refugees knocking on the door of Europe. The picture you see on the screen was part of an exhibition that was presented at the Museum of London a couple of months ago. The exhibition was called London Futures. And the idea of the exhibition was to sensitize Londoners about what their city could look like in 50 years from now under the influence of climate change. So we would see some of the major landmarks of London completely transformed by climate change. And among the pictures that were part of the exhibition, there was this one, which is a huge refugee camp around Buckingham Palace. So the message is clear to Londoners. You'd better switch off the light when you exit a room, because if you don't, this is what's going to happen, a huge refugee camp in front of Buckingham Palace. <laughs> or this, a slum full of Bangladeshi people in Trafalgar Square. Of course, these pictures were kind of well-intentioned, but <clears throat> 
we know that the road to hell with, is paved with good intentions. And actually, if you take these pictures, apart from the context of an exhibition on climate change, you might imagine that they were part of the extreme right propaganda. London invaded by refugees and migrants. Landscapes transformed by immigration. You can almost see a few mosques in the background. <laughs> this rhetoric was also what Favotko calls a disaster ready for consumption. Some of you might have seen this terrible movie, which was called Climate Refugees, and portraying the climate refugees as being governed from a kind of war room and a kind of security council meeting and identifying the hot spots where crises were ongoing. The movie obviously had a lot of success and was presented in many festivals, including top uh, festivals like the, the Sundance Film Festival. And the idea was to portray this issue of migration flows and displacements induced by climate change as a humanitarian disaster, as if, it could, as if it could not be anything else than a humanitarian issue. The problems of this rhetoric are, of course, numerous. The first one is certainly that it doesn't match reality that we know from empirical studies that environmental displacement does not look like that. We know, for example, that most of these displacements are often internal and multi-causal. Another pitfall is that it, of course, induces environmental determinism. We assume that the nature and the extent of the displacement will depend only on the impacts of climate change. Which means that we forget completely about the policies and about the other factors that will also induce migration and determine the nature and the extent of migration. And because of this environmental determinism, we will see projections of huge numbers of people displaced by 2050 or by the end of the century which are projections and estimates that are based only on the number of people living in regions at risk, but numbers that, do, that, don't, that don't say anything about the number of people who might actually be displaced. So this environmental, the risk of environmental determinism, apart from the fact that this is, of course, scientifically unsound, is that it might make us forget completely about the role of policies. Finally, perhaps the worst pitfall of this rhetoric is that it doesn't serve the interests of the migrants at all. Because it plays with the fear of governments and of the population, and doing so, it actually fuels xenophobic prejudices. And because it presents the migrants as a threat to international security, forgetting that the real reason why the people migrate is often to improve the personal human security. And so some examples of that, of this deterministic perspective, are, for example, this kind of graph that you can find in actually scientific journals, basically estimating the number of people who will be displaced with different levels of sea level rise. 
if the number of people would be on the move by 2050 would be determined only by the extent of sea level rise. It also induces a security agenda when we deal with this migration, and this map appeared in an official report that was submitted to the German government by the German Advisory Council on Climate Change, where basically the report identifies the hotspots of climate change, that is, the places where it is likely that we will have to deal with conflicts. And you can see that in the majority of these places, in the majority of these hotspots, well, the conflicts are linked to migration movements and displacements. The result of that is that India, for example, has now built a fence at its border with Bangladesh, officially to fight against illegal immigration. But I guess that the Indian policymakers kind of saw it coming and saw the possible threat of people migrating from Bangladesh to India because of sea level rise. to illustrate this with a small case study, which is the case of the small island states. Uh, small island states and the islanders have been a very powerful instrument in this rhetoric, in these discourses, because they've been often considered as laboratories of climate change. We've always used, and perhaps we've always thought, of islands as laboratories. We've always thought of islands as simple societies, as simple organizations that could help us understand more complex societies, that is, our societies. Uh, very soon in anthropology, these islands were considered as laboratories of social practices and of social customs that would help us understand our own customs. Again, in the case of climate change, islands are often considered as laboratories of climate change. This is, for example, very obvious in the climate negotiations, where the heroes of NGOs and advocacy groups are often the small island states. And in the first line, of course, Tuvalu, Kiribati, and the Maldives, that is the states that might disappear because of sea level rise. This picture was taken in the Copenhagen negotiation. So the islands are now viewed as the place where the impacts of climate change will be the most severe, severe therefore the incarnation of these impacts. And therefore islanders are also the first witnesses and the first victims of climate change. And this is a representation of them that has been increasingly used by their own governments in order to make their point in the climate negotiations. And the products of this is that before climate change, very few people had ever heard of Tuvalu or Kiribati. And that the paradox is that these islands became known only because they were at risk of disappearing. And they seemed to matter only because of the prospect of their disappearance. media trick that was used by the own government of the islands is this, of course, underwater cabinet meeting of the government of the Maldives that took place a few weeks before the Copenhagen summit as a way to alert the public opinion and the media about the risk of the islands being washed away and of the situation that could face the islanders. So this image of small 
finance as laboratories of climate change has been used as well by the own governments of these islands, but of course, along with NGOs and the media. <coughs> and as I was saying, the islands seem to matter only because they will soon disappear. And another paradox is that in the conference center of Copenhagen, they had put this giant blow in the middle of the hole, and they had forgotten to put these islands on the globe as if they had disappeared already. If the islands are laboratories of climate change, then certainly their inhabitants are the canaries in the coal mine. And you probably know, being in the UK, that when there were still coal mines, the miners used to take with them canaries, you know, these small little yellow birds, because canaries are very sensitive animals, meaning that when they smell a toxic gas, they would start agitating and they would start singing, and the miners knew that they needed to get out of the mine as soon as the canaries started singing, because that was the proof that something was going wrong and that they could smell a toxic gas in the mine. And in a way, the inhabitants of small island states are the canaries in the coal mine of global warming. They're supposed to alert us about the dangers of climate change. And in a way, the disappearance of the islands and the subsequent migration of the people is presented as something that we cannot avoid, as a kind of fatality. The problem with this rhetoric is that it is deeply self-centered. We care about ourselves. We don't really care about the people from the islands. We look at them to see what's going to happen to us. And it's worth remembering that the canaries in the mine were never safe. They were there just to save and to allow the miners, but nobody really cared about the canaries themselves. So this rhetoric for the canaries, for the, for the islanders, might induce a relativist trap, where the idea of being refugee becomes consubstantial of their own identity, and at the end of the day might disempower them and completely undermine the possibilities of local adaptation, of staying on the island. Many inhabitants of these islands have already kind of integrated the idea that they will need to leave at one point or another, which clearly for now undermines the possibility for them and for the governments to look for local adaptation solutions. All of this, I think, induces that we put an excessive focus on different things. First, we tend to focus excessively on the development of new legal instruments at the expense of migration governance. If we consider that environmental migration and displacement is something new, then we have a tendency to consider that we need to address it with new frameworks and new instruments. And we tend to forget completely the importance of migration governance. we also tend to put an excessive focus on climate change. And yet, at the moment, probably most of the people displaced because of environmental changes are displaced by events that are not directly related to climate change, or by events that we cannot prove are related to climate change. So there is a great risk of discrimination here 
between the people who would be displaced by climate change and the people who would be displaced by other environmental changes. And in the current state of science, it is currently impossible to clearly attribute one specific event to climate change. And I don't see how it would be possible in the future. It also puts an excessive focus on humanitarian challenges at the expense of adaptation, development, and justice. As I was saying, we view the issue as a purely humanitarian issue, and we tend to forget about long-term solution. And finally, perhaps most importantly, it puts an excessive focus on those who leave and turns a blind eye on those who stay. And something that empirical studies show us is that at the same time that there are people who are forced to migrate because of environmental changes, there are also a lot of people who are forced to stay because they are simply unable to migrate when they are facing an environmental crisis. Um, if I take a case that I, uh, that I did study personally, the case of the displacement related to Hurricane Katrina, for example, you probably remember from the news that 60,000 people were stuck in New Orleans after the hurricane had struck. A key reason why these 60,000 people were struck in New Orleans is because they were too poor to actually evacuate. They had no friends or family outside of the city, which means that if they had to evacuate, first they needed to have a car, because no collective evacuation had been organized. And then they needed to afford hotel nights outside of the city. And the prices of the hotel nights were increasingly, were incredibly expensive at the time, which means that a lot of the families who were stuck in New Orleans decided rationally to stay because it was simply too expensive for them to evacuate. Also, if we forget those who stay, we also forget the impact of migration on the communities we've stayed. And something that we've observed in many empirical studies is that, of course, it's often the young and the most educated who can leave, meaning that those who are left behind are the very young, the very old, and the poor and the uneducated. It is very important, I think, when we consider the issue to envision the question as concerning both those who leave, but also those who stay. I was saying that there was a kind of perceived need to come up with new instruments, with new frameworks. Here are some examples of some well-intentioned reactions in Australia with regard to the people from small islands. Policy proposal for a specific climate refugee status, a report from the Labour Party about our joining neighbours, as if clearly the fate of the small islands was already kind of decided. And then, recently, came what I call a Copernican revolution. Environmental displacement had always, be, had always been envisioned as a failure to adapt to climate change or to environmental change at large. The people would move if and only there no other choice. Migration would be a kind of last resort solution. The 
that the people would use only if they had failed to adapt to the changing environment. But empirical studies made appear that a lot of people were also migrating in order to adapt, and not because they had failed to adapt. And so empirical studies highlighted some migration patterns that were actually an adaptation strategy. And this idea that migration could become an adaptation strategy has been actually quite actively promoted, not only by environmental scholars, but also by migration scholars. And there are two recent reports, one for the World Bank and one for, for the British government, that actually promoted the idea that migration should be considered as a way to adapt rather than as a failure to adapt. The policy consequence of this is important. Environmental displacement is no longer considered as a problem, but rather as a solution. And it bears, of course, political consequences and numerous pitfalls as well. I will start with the positive side and with the opportunity that it offers. In Cancun was decided the new Cancun adaptation framework. And as you know, some of the discussions right now as part of the climate negotiations are about the creation of a green climate fund, which should provide $100 billion a year to developing countries. This amount of money should fund a number of policies which are detailed in the Cancun adaptation framework. So the Cancun adaptation framework lists a few of the policies that could and should be funded by the Green Climate Fund. And of course, the big novelty and the big victory for environmental scholars and activists is this paragraph 14F, which says that basically the Green Climate Fund could also finance measures to enhance understanding, coordination, and cooperation related to national, regional, and international climate change-induced displacement, migration, and plant relocation were appropriate. It was clearly considered as a big major victory because, of course, there is an opportunity there. There is an opportunity to see some migration programs funded as part of adaptation, funded as part of the Green Climate Fund. So the question we need to ask ourselves is whether or not migration could or should be seen as an environmental policy. And it seems to me that the defining question between both scholars and policymakers right now is no longer whether environmental displacement is something new or not, but about whether migration is a problem or a solution. In other words, is it a failure to adapt or an adaptation strategy? Because of this shift towards a new defining question, there is a related political shift towards the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change as the best framework to address the issue. It seems now that the place where the issue should be addressed are the climate negotiations. Not so much migration policies or forum on migration and development, but rather climate negotiations. 
think that the reason for that is also the need or the perceived need that the issue should be addressed globally because it involves issues of global responsibility, of global justice, and that therefore one would need a kind of global framework to address this issue. And of course, there is such a regime with regard to climate change. There is no such forum with regard to migration. Soon enough, activists and NGOs understood that it would not be possible to change the Geneva Convention or to draft a new convention, and therefore they turned themselves towards the quickly developing climate change governance as the best forum where the issue should be addressed. There are many problems related to that, to that. The first one is that, as I was saying, environmental displacements that would not be related to climate change would not be addressed under this framework. The framework also opens the door to preemptive resettlements, especially if the temperature rises by about four degrees, as it is now likely to be the case, given our failure to mitigate climate change and to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. Increasingly, governments are turning to displacement in the name of adaptation. Because, of course, right now, too many people live in too many dangerous regions, and some of the most vulnerable regions in the world are also amongst the most densely populated, especially in South and Southeast Asia. So as a result of that, some governments have already started moving populations in provision of future climate change impacts, very often with disastrous results. An example is the environmental migration program in China, where basically nomadic pastoralists from Inner Mongolia are moved and displaced towards the urban centers as a way to fight desertification and the progress of the Gobi Desert. Another one is the case of the resettlement of the villages in the Mekong Delta, one of the most vulnerable deltas in the world, as a way to reduce their vulnerability. The problem is that vulnerability is very often misunderstood and reduced to geographical exposure. And when they moved, the flooded communities, actually, the policymakers from Vietnam actually increased their vulnerability. They reduced their exposure to risk, they reduced their exposure to flooding, but they increased their vulnerability because at the same time that they were reducing their exposure to risk, they were actually inducing social destructions and social dislocation, meaning that basically the livelihoods of the people were much more disturbed by the resettlement process than they were by the floods. And the Cancun adaptation frameworks actually opens the door to these resettlement planned relocation is exactly what these resettlements are about. And if we don't take safeguards and guidelines guiding the governments, it is likely that these resettlements will end up with disastrous results as they have in the past. To conclude, it seems to me that there is a great need for migration scholars, but also for migration policymakers, to reinvest the field of environmental migration and environmental displacement. 
First, because I think that they are the ones who can reconcile the political construction of the problem with the empirical reality. And that if the political construction of the issue doesn't match the empirical reality, then the policy responses that will be developed will be inadequate. They should also reinvest the field, because if they don't do so, the lessons from the past will be lost. I mean, all the works and all the policies that have been developed to guarantee and protect the rights of migrants and refugees are at risk of being forgotten. Because most likely, the policies will be invented again out of the blue. Also because if they don't, there is a risk that discriminations could be created between those who stay and those who leave, but also between those displaced by climate change and those displaced by other environmental disruptions, and of course between these environmental migrants or environmental displaces and the other migrants. And we know that it wouldn't serve the interests of the migrants and that it would be unsound from a scientific point of view. And finally, there is another reason, and I will conclude with that. It is that if you don't involve migration policymakers in the game, the policy responses might just prove unrealistic. Some might say that it's a good, it might actually be a good idea, given the current restrictive migration policies, not to involve migration policymakers, but at the end of the day, that might just prove unrealistic. And I will just conclude by telling you another anecdote. A few years ago, I think it was two or three years ago, the French government had the idea that it should take a major policy initiative to protect the rights of the environmental displacements. So, you know, France being the country of human rights and blah, 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 it was the responsibility and the duty of France to do something. So, I was summoned to the office of the junior minister for the environment. And so I met with the staff, she came to say hello, and just, ah, you know, first of all, we need to do something, we need to take an initiative, we'll organize a big, major conference, and we will announce a major initiative. What could we do? What do you think we should do? And I said, well, I know. Is this something that you have discussed with the immigration minister? And she was like, oh, no. We should keep this between us. <laughs> you shouldn't tell the immigration minister we're thinking about that. And I told her, well, you know, you cannot take this initiative out of the blue without, I mean, I'm not part of the government, but if I were you, I wouldn't take this initiative without telling the immigration minister. And then she said, no, let's not involve the immigration minister. Let's partner with the Ministry of Human Rights. So I had another meeting with the staff of the Junior Minister for Human Rights. And again, France should take initiative, France, the country of human rights, blah, blah, blah. And I, again, I said, should we, shouldn't we involve the immigration minister in that? Oh, no. They're bad people. Don't involve them in that. They will completely ruin the initiatives. So we shouldn't tell them. And then, of course, the immigration minister found out that some ministers wanted to take an initiative. And, of course, you know what happened. The initiative was never taken. So at the end of the day, I think the lesson from this is that if you don't involve the policymaker from the immigration office and from the immigration ministries in the debate, at the end of the day, any initiative, any policy response might just be killed and proven unrealistic. 
So thanks a lot for your attention. And If you've enjoyed this download, you might like to listen to other podcasts of Force Migration online. www.forcemigration.org slash podcasts.